0: I think I've always been an explorer I was very lucky. My mom raised me by herself and she was studying to be a geophysicist. So I grew up traveling around the world with her and going to wherever there are volcanoes and earthquakes. Because of my mom I was very into science and mostly natural sciences. So getting sick, that was uh, an important thing that I lost. By painting, it kind of gave me a, a way of connecting with something that I'd lost. So that yeah, That's kind of it going.
1: I'm not going to lie. Some days I miss the tide. The scent of a saltwater breeze coming over me. But I have no doubt. Where I am right now is right where I'm supposed to be. This is the journey of the soul. It's the adventure of me. No matter what I'm told, I know that I am free To roam my own way, to float in my own sea To chase my own dreams on this adventure of me
0: But Art always kind of bugged me because there was uh, there was never anything tangible that I could touch in a consistent way when I tried to talk to people about art, it was always so fluid and that, that kind of bothered me bothered me back then but uh, then it wasn't until after i lost the ability to kind of do all the things that i used to do that uh, i started to explore like what i could do within my new limitations personally it was also uh, a way for me to relate to nature i'd been uh, in nature. Since I was a kid every summer I would go and work uh, either on a farm or when I got older I was uh, a ranger in uh, nature conservations. One day I, I just started limping a bit and I thought I was just dropping out of shape. I went to the gym and started training intensely but every time I did I would get a fever and then I would recover and then I'd go and train again and then I'd get a fever again. Eventually I stopped trying to train and gradually these symptoms spread. I stopped being able to use my My hand as well as I used to, and then my left hand, and then my left foot. And this took like uh, four years. During that time, we went and saw all kinds of doctors. We went to Sweden, we went to America, and they consulted with doctors from here and there. And nobody was able to, to give a definitive answer. There was some kind of damage in my brainstem, and I think the main theory that we have now is that it was some kind of uh, bacteria that got into you know, got through the barriers and somehow uh, managed to do this damage there. That took four years until I was lying in hospital bed, completely paralyzed below the neck. Since then, I've gotten a bit better, and this is why I'm training so much today is to try to reactivate all those neurons and muscles that have deteriorated and atrophied, see uh, how far I can get. I like to think I've been an explorer since I can remember, but an uh, artist is more recent. I, I actually, when I was younger, I would usually, while she was working, I would uh, wander off by myself and, and explore the areas around. Yeah, I was like that, and we traveled quite a lot. I, Got to see amazing places I was really enjoyed integrating or trying to integrate into other cultures, so when I went to Japan, that was you know a wonderful experience fourteen years old, <laughs> trying to you know figure out how things were different there from iceland and I, I drew some painting and oh Isaac. actually, I realized that's the first memory of me making art as well, trying a rainbow or something. <laughs> we went to Denmark, we went to Japan twice. Traveled around. We traveled around all of America. She counted once and we've been to 45 states That was quite a lot. We went to Galapagos. That was after I became sick actually. Went in a wheelchair to Galapagos That was quite an adventure. That was one of the countries on my bucket list. That was fun to be able to check that off the list even though was living with these new limitations. Now I only have one country left which I'd like to see someday. Nepal was another one. I've been there also twice now. I was there last year. We got stuck in quarantine in Kathmandu for five months. It started out a bit scary. Everybody was very calm and relaxed about it. The virus didn't come to Nepal until late, relatively, compared to other countries. Still kind of a mystery. Then one day we we did get a call from our contact, my brother in Nepal, Raul He called us and said, go to the bank, take out all the money that you can, Buy as much food as you can. They're going to close the country for at least three months. Everybody got a bit of a shock there and nobody was outside. All the roads were closed. There was a week there where everybody was a bit like, oh, oh shit, what's going on? But at the same time, we were fairly well prepared. We had gotten an advanced warning, so we had enough food, we had enough water, we had enough of everything and the weather is wonderful there. We have a, a very nice garden where we could go outside every day. We weren't complaining. It actually turned out to be quite relaxed. We were outside of the city center. So close to the city center, if people were out and about, the police came and just beat them up to keep everybody inside because we were out in the way out of the center the stores they kept open secretly you could kind of sneak in and buy everything we needed so we, we made a nice time out of it and, and during that time I was with the physiotherapists and her family two physiotherapists actually every day we woke up we trained for, for six hours or something we had a mission to focus on at the same time I heard stories from Iceland where everything was closed and cold and so <laughs> I was quite happy to be stuck in Kathmandu rather than here here. but then once summer came in Iceland and the virus went down then it was time to go home I I think um, traveling with mom though was uh different because then I was always just following her and I remember when I started traveling by myself how uh, how much more fun and adventurous that was because you know mom she traveled a lot before me even so she was a very confident traveler all I had to do was just make sure not to lose her wherever we were was uh, very manageable and also mostly when we traveled we were always uh, escorted by university people we were using like in Japan we had, had well respected professors who took us out to dinner and showed us all the places which was nice because we did get some cultural insights through them, but it also kind of meant that we were chaperoned. When I, I was 22, I traveled to Nor- the Nordic countries. They're so close to us that it's like going to a, a bigger version of, of home. When I went to Peru when I was 20-something, yeah, then I was by myself, and I had to figure out everything. That was an experience that I felt was very rewarding, and I think if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone ill, I would have continued that. But as a child, I remember when I was 14 in Japan, I went to this place uh, called Akihapara, which is a neighborhood in Tokyo where they sell electronics. Basically a neighborhood as big as my home neighborhood with nothing but electronic stores. And, and there I saw Stuff that wouldn't come to Iceland until 10 years later. It it did kind of open my eyes to the fact that we live in a kind of bubble at home where things are very different. We, We don't have to worry about crime. I suppose that's another thing I remember. Mom scaring me in America because, you know, I was used to just walking around with everybody and everybody was my friend. And then to try to scare that out of me, she warned me that if she, if I ever lost her, somebody might steal me or something. I'd gone to Denmark and Sweden and Norway and America. I've, I traveled a bit around Mer- America, but that was kind of the first kind of way out of my comfort zone type trip. I traveled to Peru by myself, but I met Professor, uh, a friend of mine there. We traveled down and we were looking for fossils. He's a paleontologist, and yeah, it was amazing. We found lots of fossils. I found the skull of a dolphin that had not been discovered yet. It was kind of cool, because my friend, he has been working there for decades. He's been helping out with mapping of these areas, so he started calling the area where I found the skull, the Viking Fields. So now, uh, if you look at a map in Peru, there's a place called Viking Fields, which... It's a kind of joke for us, because I like to think of some historian or sociologist trying to figure out when did the Vikings visit Peru. I would usually have a suitcase with all the necessities, but then I would usually leave the suitcase somewhere and then wander off with a backpack from there. I would have a tent, you know, and uh, all the things needed for camping and, and food. And I would usually wear the same clothes for a long time, so... I would have maybe one change of clothes and and then usually I would have enough money so that, you know, if I needed anything I could just buy it. I think I was always quite good at making do with very little and usually I would always get invited in somewhere. I think this is kind of part of the Icelandic culture back in the day when kids would just get invited for dinner somewhere. Parents didn't really worry if the kid didn't show up for dinner. They just assumed that they had been fed by somebody else. It was a small town culture. So I think I kind of got into that habit somehow. And wherever I traveled, I always kind of somehow managed to get invited to dinner or have a place to stay. I I, I did love sleeping outside, but uh, I wouldn't do that today. If I was starting out today, what I do with everything is just go on YouTube. <laughs> How to camp. But Also, I I was taught by a mom, a professor who taught me a lot. He, he is a advanced camper every time i would go camping with him he would have some new gizmo or, or gadget to light fires or cook or something he would always give me whatever he brought over he'd brought it bring it over and and leave it with me so i had uh, like a gas cooker which was very compact and small and so it was nice to be able to make soup although i never really liked soup but still to be able to make it if you want to show off. I suppose it depends on where you're going. I mean, I think that's the most important part. Growing up camping in Iceland, you know, there's no wildlife that you need to worry about. It's just cold. You don't even have mosquitoes in Iceland and water is everywhere you can drink from every stream. And you know, you just gotta have food and that's it. I remember when I went to Peru, it was a bit of a shock. I was doing very well when we were high up in the mountains. There I was usually up front within the lead Feeling great, but then once we got down into the tropical heat, then I slowed down very, you know, quickly, and, and I drank more than I'd, I'd, you know, been used to drinking. Didn't realize I needed quite as much water as I I really did. And I suppose that's a good example of things where you need to kind of prepare for the location. and first we started out in the desert with my professor friend, but then I flew up to Cusco where I had three weeks. I wandered around there. I showed up not having a hotel and having no plan. That was kind of intentional. I, I wanted just to, see, you know, see what would happen if I just throw myself into a challenging situation and see how well I do. You know, try to get lost and, and you know, figure things out. I loved Robinson Crusoe. That was my fantasy. I wanted to get stuck on a desert island and see if I could make a life out of that. So I never got to try that, exactly. There was a guy who was a friend of my, a professor friend, he came and picked me up at the airport. When he picked me up, he said, Hola, me llamo Rodolfo. It's about as simple as it gets you know hello my name is rodolfo but i didn't understand what he said or i didn't pick it up or something so he switched to english and then we spoke english for the rest of that period for the next couple of days and then i went to the desert with the professor and at some point our car broke down so i had to go with two uh, of uh, our worker uh, assistants and to get the car fixed and they didn't speak any english we kind of managed by you know using hand gestures and speaking you know Spanish and there are certain English words the same as in Spanish so we managed But I got a bit of Spanish there and and then in Cusco there was only one of the you know 20 something bars that were there that was actually owned by a local all the other ones were owned by English and Dutch uh, Germans I always went to the the, that bar to uh, try to support the local community but also to meet the owner he was a very nice guy and he was an expert on the incas and the incas religion i would go there every day and just talk to him he didn't speak any english so we would kind of using hand gestures and writing things down and whenever you know we got stuck he would call one of the bartenders and who spoke english and they would translate for us so yeah that was a big part of it and there was this girl she was a Uh, In the streets of Cusco, there was always these children that were trying to sell you cigarettes or some kind of, you know, something. In the beginning, you feel very sorry for them, but it eventually gets a bit irritating. And then apparently they are run by adults that send them to these places, try to pick up sympathy from people. There was this one girl who was, I think she was about 13 at the time. For some reason, I, I decided to pay her to protect me from the other kids. A job that she took uh, much more seriously than I expected. Well, she was trying to sell me something. I, I said uh, no to the cigarettes or whatever she was selling and, and just gave her the equivalent of 500 kronos and said, yeah, if you protect me, I'll... I'll <laughs> here you go. So for the next two weeks, whenever I was walking the streets, she would come running and keep all the other kids away from me. But further service she did was that she would always be like a meter or two behind me. It was kind of a joke but turned into this fun experience. And she and I are Facebook friends now, and she's married and has children, so I, I kind of keep an eye on her. I was speaking with some of my local friends who also didn't speak much English, and whenever I mispronounced something or was grammatically incorrect, she would come and whisper in my ear very politely, like, you know, you should say this instead of that. So gradually, my Spanish became better and better, and then I had a very rewarding moment when I met Rodolfo again. This was uh, one and a half month later, back in Lima. We went out to dinner, and he was sitting next to me, and then at some point the waitress comes, and and I order my food in, in well, not fluent Spanish, but you know, good enough. And then I look at him, and he, he was his eyes were wide, and like he, he thought I'd picked up Spanish from nothing in one and a half month, which, I kind of, yeah, I think I let him think that. Although, yeah, as I I mentioned before, I think that was just, I'd already done two years of Spanish, but it took a while for my brain to kind of activate on that. But that was one of many uh, good memories that I had from that one trip. It was interesting, that that one and a half month in Peru, I felt like I, I lived more in that time than in three years, or in four years here in Iceland. So that was one of the reasons why I had the ambition of being in a, area where I didn't speak the language, I didn't know the culture. You know, the more foreign, the better. Everything is novel and everything is interesting. I made a a lot of uh, good friends in Peru. It was also interesting just, you know, and I I met a lot of foreigners in Iceland through my mom, you know, students coming here to study. And At the time, I was partying a lot and, and social life was the main thing. I would always be very interested in learning about how social customs were different how do you get drunk in <laughs> in china <laughs> and what kind of humor is is normal there and but yeah but being in a place like peru and and of course there are uh, huge differences but experiencing how much you have sim, you know in common with somebody who has lived a completely different life than you in a different culture with a different history but still there are so many things in common that you just kind of click with these people. I, I, I really like that feeling. There's still unsolved mysteries to what the Incas did. Like, they built Machu Picchu, which is uh, one of the wonders of the world, where, you know, out in, in the middle of nowhere, there's this city where all the rocks are very smooth, what's it called, unformed, so they're, they're not, like, all squares or triangles or something there. They have different shapes, but they fit perfectly. know, within millimeters to each other. How did they do that? They had some stoneworking skills that we don't have. We don't know how they did that today and and probably changing the direction of these huge rivers, flowing rivers. So they were able to do incredible stuff. I think one of the things I like about the Incas was their method of conquest. So, yes, they were like a dominating tribe, or of tribes, the right word, but you know, a kind of a pack that took over from a lot of other tribes that were in the area. But they did it primarily by creating an abundance of food. When the others uh, needed food, then they could come and say, If you do as we say, we will feed you. Through that, they created the Inca, Inca roads, Inca trails, which uh, lie all over uh, Peru and to Bolivia. These roads were important just. Uh, to uh, be able to move all the food that they produced in these different places. Uh, A lot of it was potatoes. Potatoes come from this area originally, and they have hundreds of different species of potatoes. Yeah, and then they would have this method of communication, where they tie knots on strings, and then they would have runners that would run between all these areas with these nuts that were accounting mechanisms. They created independently a lot of things that we created in the West and also in the East and were the cause of, of great growth. The Incas had had a couple of more centuries. It would have been interesting to see what kind of technological culture would have evolved out of that. I got sidelined a bit. I I went to university in Iceland, so I didn't travel as much as I'd like. In the summer I was always working as a ranger. My plan had been to finish uh, my degree and then I was going to work as a ranger in the summer and then fly off to Peru or some other warmer place during the Icelandic winter and work as a tour guide or find some kind of job which would allow me to basically stay in nature outside as much as possible. I mean, this is something which uh, has always been uh, a bit trippy for me, coming from Iceland. where I mean, we do have, uh, you know, history stretching back to the thousands. You know, I think Iceland was colonized just before the thousands. We had a very small farming culture, so no big monumental uh, buildings or epic cities, like London, where you have a city built on a city that's built on a city and you de- Keep digging down, you're just gonna find more history. I kind of got the same sense when I went to Japan. I kind of look for that when I travel now. So, coming to Peru, it was uh, amazing. There they have centuries of of farming and then the Inca culture. You get this feeling that you're standing on soil that's very different from the one that you grew up with. It kind of gives you a, a certain feeling of uncertainty when you start thinking about it. The moment that you realize that it's still gonna hold you up, even though it's very different, it, it's a, it's a yeah, rewarding feeling. I started out studying uh, biology, and then I decided to change and study psychology and sociology. I regretted that change and decided I, I, I missed the natural sciences, so I went to physics then uh, i i wasn't studying uh, physics when i got sick my plan had been to use my biology education and physics and my geology background from growing up with my mom and studying astrobiology that was a kind of a way to justify learning a little bit of everything and then uh, my plan had been that i wanted to go to antarctica and work as a science assistant and then when The call to go to Mars would come, then I would have a degree, a useful degree, and real-world experience in working in a hostile, crazy situation. So that was kind of trying. My dream of fulfilling my Robinson Crusoe fantasy of going to a a strange place and having to survive. I mean, it's different now. The allure of it is to be alone, surrounded by penguins maybe, but... But like you know going to this unspoiled place of which we have a lot here in Iceland. I do always seek these kind of solitude places but you know now it's it's difficult, it's different. I can't be alone anymore. We'll see. One day probably. I think it's the quiet. It's uh, kind of the way my mind works. I remember when I was young when I was in town I was very social. I was getting drunk with my friends and going to parties, and playing basketball, and being very active. But when I was a warden, I functioned differently somehow. There, I remember always the transition. So going from the city to a place where living in a cabin with no electricity, and where I met maybe three people, four people each day at the most, plus the rangers that were with me, of course. One or two people. Then, just first couple of days were really difficult. So I w- I want to go back to town, party with my friends. I was missing out on this party or this opportunity or whatever. But then eventually you just kind of you know calm down and you settle and and then every day you wake up, you do your chores, you read, and you know you you just you would sit. I would sit outside and just watch a bird for an hour or something. And there's something kind of undescribable from that experience, which I really, I really sought out. And then uh, a lot of the time it was also, when you're in town, you're overstimulated. So many things constantly triggering your attention. You know, look here, look here, go there, do that. But when you're out in these secluded places, then you are surrounded by beauty all the time, but you kind of, it's there all the time. But then every now and then something will happen and it'll just blow your mind. Like there's a big caldera crater, in uh, the middle of Iceland where I was working as a ranger. First when I was 14 and then again when I was 18, 19, 20. And so I'd seen this place many times and I knew it quite well. But then one day I was there and it was unique conditions and there, there was no wind. Usually there was always a little bit of wind. This day there was no wind. And there were pink clouds hanging. Not so many. Just a few of them hanging around. And then when you looked down into this Caldera Lake. It reflected the sky perfectly. And there was just you know. That moment just kind of hit me somehow. And you know it sits with me still. So you know months of nothingness would become so much worth it just for that one experience. I often thought about photography. I've never been really interested in photography, but I heard somebody describe the process of sitting for weeks or something, trying to capture that one image. And then when you finally get that perfect image, it makes makes those weeks of nothingness completely worth it. There was this day, I think I was 11 years old, when my mom, she took me to meet, we went to meet the president. Uh, of Iceland. She was hosting an event for the Japanese ambassador. There was a bunch of yeah, Japanese people there and business people from Iceland and then mom because she was a scientist who had been in Japan. We went there and then I got because the president didn't really have much to do. She, she hung out with me and I got to go and serve hors d'oeuvres to, to the people there with the president which was, which was quite cool. She is a very nice lady. Then from there we went to an airport we went in a small plane, and I got to fly. We flew to Skaftafell, which is one of our nature preserves. Once there, the local warden greeted us, and, and uh, he was about to go out and charge the tourists for camping. My Mom said that I spoke English, so I, I was invited to go along. I got a coat, and he, he just kind of gave me the job of going in, like going to the tourists and saying, "Hey, you got to pay for the camping." And, then afterwards, Mom asked what what out of this day had been the most fun. And I said, being a ranger. <laughs> Ever since then, I, I always wanted to be a ranger. I got an opportunity much sooner than I expected. Because uh, Mom was working a lot in the Highlands, distributing seismometers to uh, measure earthquakes and uh, try to map out the tephra under us. I got bored, of course, sitting next to her in a car day after day after day. So at some point, she just left me with the warden. And he just put me to work. So, you know, I was, uh, I knew the area quite well. This was when I was 13. So I got to uh, talk to the tourists and explain how to get to this place and that place and how to be safe and, and this kind of stuff. I, I got a good reputation from that. The next year I was invited to be like a cabin warden. It's a, a bit different from the Rangers, but it's a similar job in Kwerketl, which is in the northern side of Vatnajöketl. That was an amazing experience. And a few years later I did go to the the ranger course where you learn kind of all kinds of things, but I was an arrogant teenager and thought I knew everything. (laughs) This became kind of part of my routine and I I think it really helped uh, because it did mean that every summer I escaped kind of the drugs and the the violence that was uh, in the city. It was a bit rowdy time. I mean it's not much discussed today I think but I know a lot of kids growing up, the boys especially in my generation, there was a lot of bullying and imagine a, a bunch of Viking kids with no supervision, very little supervision. There was a, a lot of drug use and there was a lot of violence so uh, it was always good to kind of get out of that into nature every summer. There is like a, an organization which is governmentally funded that they are in charge of nature protection in general, and then uh, they also run the ranger program. So uh, they will get uh, geologists and uh, tourism people to kind of educate people who are who are wanting to become come rangers. So it's a very general job, and and the education for it is actually very interesting because. You learn a little bit of everything. You're learning how to kind of be a tour guide to some degree, but you're also learning how to... You learn first aid. You learn extreme versions of first aid because uh, very frequently you will be in a location where it'll take a long time for any kind of rescue to arrive. So if somebody does sustain some kind of injury, then you are probably going to be the person who has to take care of it. We used to take care of the cabins, the camping sites, and be the rangers in the area. But there were some arguments between two different institutions, so now it's a separate thing. There are rangers, and then there are cabin uh, caretakers. It's uh, Primarily, it's uh, making sure that people are safe, but also protecting nature from people. A big part of that is education. One of the main things is to try to protect the pristineness, of the highlands is that people come here and they want to drive anywhere because there's our big open sands and people often have very nice you know cars on big wheels they think that they can just drive anywhere but you know problem is uh, tire tracks in these places and there's often black sand but then we have these white ash or like a white light llama that blows around so uh, tire tracks will get filled with these white sandy things and then suddenly you in a black desert you have two white lines that are very prominent so whenever somebody does uh, drive in these places if they were caught they would have to do it but usually we ended up having to go with uh, rakes and kind of rake over them and try to make them go away but a big part of the job was educating people that they cannot drive you know outside of these places and you're not allowed to uh, leave any garbage anywhere there weren't weren't many problems when I was there. There was always one or two incidents of somebody having driven some part of the road off road, but luckily it wasn't so bad. Of course, it got a bit more challenging when the tourism boom hit Iceland, but that was after I stopped working as a ranger. But yeah, so protecting nature, keeping people safe—that's the main part of it. By many many days. that was, was like uh, I think my favorite period was when. Uh, so, in Herdubreða Lindir, which is like an oasis in the desert close to the queen of Icelandic mountains, which is Herdebreð. Uh That's where I was when I was 13 and that's where I was also when I was 20. And there, there's a big glacial river that flows uh, right by there. It's called uh, running clope, meaning that there's a lot of water coming out at once. So it was kind of eating its way uh, up the pure river that flows close to this area and this is the reason why there's a lot of vegetation in this otherwise desert area. Because this river had been going higher and higher up uh, up the smaller river, it kind of pushed it up so it became higher. It became impassable. Cars couldn't go over it anymore as easily. And this was on the radio warning people, you know, don't come here. Everything is, you know, screwed. For three days, I didn't see anybody. I was there all alone and the weather was wonderful. It was like 26, 27 degrees, barely any wind. I think on day two, I woke up and for some reason, I decided not to put on any clothes. There are two ways into this area and either one, when it's been dry like this, you can see a car coming or 30 minutes before it arrives, so I kind of knew if somebody would come I could run and get my clothes So I went out, I I did my chores, I painted and put up the flag and then I was fixing one of the paths where I decided to take a nap and I lay down and right next to a lake which is right there and I was kind of half asleep when I heard this noise on to the right of me and then I saw a mink Come running out of the bush and it jumped over my chest and in midair it kind of looked into my face and I saw the panic like it had just been about to jump over a stone or something and then suddenly there was a face there like wide-eyed staring at it leaping over me and, and then it landed on the other side and, and <laughs> hurried off very quickly but there was something about that moment that was kind of dissolving into nature and nature just kind of Jumping over you, it can happen during the summer. or another. And then this will happen in the highlands sometimes, because if it's warm many days in a row, the sand uh, and the lava heats up, so it kind of you know permeates some heat back out. And the glacier does really interesting things to the weather as well, because it's cool you know cool and hot weather creates some kind of spaces so that often you know you get very warm air close to the glacier somehow i i spent a lot of time in the north i like to think that i'm uh, adopted uh, which is a that's definitely one of the most beautiful places in the world i think uh, there's so much uh, variety in a small place and then you have this lake which is uh, full of birds there's a lot of wildlife you know relative to average in iceland in this one spot I camped uh, a bit around there and then in the Eastern Fjords I did some hiking. I, I was on a farm there also when I was a kid and uh, I would walk up into the valley sometime and with a tent and, and uh, I did this one once with a friend of mine. We spent I think uh, two weeks where we would uh, wake up every day and uh, we would pack up our tent and then we would walk wade over the river and then we would walk a little bit further and then camp again. So in, in about 10 days, we managed to travel like 10 kilometers or something. But that was the, the act of relocating every day that kind of made it into an adventure. I mean, in America, of course, you got to worry about uh, all kinds of wildlife. you got to hang up your, your food somewhere so the bears won't be attracted by it. And then you have flies and mosquitoes and insects that might damage or injure you somehow. It's good to have some kind of repellent or, or a snake kit or something like that. While in Iceland, you do have to worry about uh, the weather. That's what's going to kill you and the, and the land itself. Places where you can just suddenly uh, fall down a crevasse. There was one thing that happened to me once when I was a and I was walking away off, off track, you know, far from where most of the tourists were in. I had this thought in my mind that I was probably walking somewhere where nobody had walked before. Something which, you know, there are still many places in Iceland. I think that you can actually do that. And at one moment I was standing on a, a, like a hill, a lava hill, and suddenly I start sinking. I didn't know what was going on at first, but then I see cracks appearing on the hill around me and I, I start to try to move away, but then I just sink quicker and slowly slowly i keep going down and down and i realize that i'm probably falling into a cave or something like that i tried to spread out you know imagining that this was a something similar to falling into quicksand or something i knew nobody knew where i was and this all went through my head you know while i was sinking down you know so if i fell down and broke my leg or something then that was probably it you know this is how people disappear in iceland but luckily i stopped falling i, I fell sank about all the way up to my navel. And then I stopped sinking and I was able to lean forward and kind of crawl out of the hole that I had fallen into. And then I crawled back and I looked down and I saw that directly under me where I had been standing, there was like a big uh, pile of sand, but on either side to to like uh, two, three meters down, there was a cave. if If I'd fallen a bit differently, I might've actually fallen and not been able to get up. It was a good experience to remind me of, you know, people used to disappear a lot in Iceland. And There was a story you learn about this area. There was a German explorer who was called uh, Knebel, and there's a place called uh, yeah, named after him. The story goes that uh, he and a friend of his, they were uh, sailing on this lake, which I mentioned before, and uh, they disappeared and the wife of Knebel came here a year later or something convinced that there had been some kind of foul play that you know somebody had killed him or something so she came and wanted to uh, discover what had happened and the story goes that she came she went to this place and then when she came back she admitted that yes it's very easy to imagine you know somebody disappearing in this harsh land so there is that but you know given that you are careful and you have good equipment and you have a rope which you tie together, you know, a group of people, so if one goes down a crevasse, the rest can kind of pull them up. Given that, then you don't have the animals or the insects or all these things, you just gotta have good clothing and then you're, you're gonna be safe. There are differences, but but the general experience, I think, is kind of similar In many ways. I mean, the wind has a, such a strong cooling effect. So if you are out and about and you get wet and then the wind hits you, then you're going to go quick. Upside is I'm told it's not a bad way to go. You kind of lose consciousness, but uh, yeah, I'd I'd rather not. And then of course, you know, we do have winds which are so intense that you just can't stand. I mean, that happens quite frequently here. Uh, My mom and her colleagues, they have a a term which they call uh, Soviet. So that's like uh, describing a day where all you can do is sleep and eat. So about yeta, they have these cabins here and there around Iceland that are there just so that if you get caught in this kind of place, then you have the the possibility of saving yourself by going in, and then just waiting until this weather is gone. It is interesting. I, I feel like we had more of these as, as when I was a kid. You know, I remember walking to school many times. Kind of leaning almost uh, fifty degrees into the wind, just letting the wind carry you, yeah, that was' really good. and it was horrible having to go to this boring place I did not enjoy school and having to traverse these these horrible hindrances just to get to this you know, boring place was well, I went to school in America when i was uh, when I was twelve, and uh, I remember one day it snowed like two centimeters. And the school was closed. And I, I was very pleased with these, this highly intelligent system of not forcing us to go to school, even though this snow was very puny compared to what we had to wade through. wet, wet snow in Iceland. I think one of one of you know one of the best experiences you can have uh, if you have limited time in Iceland is to go around the country. So we have a ring road that was uh, originally built by the American Army. Well, well, I mean, we built it too, but they they kind of made it what it became. Well, they had military bases around Iceland. And the reason why the American army was here was because we're here in between America and Europe. German U-boats would come, and they needed to be able to uh, spot them. So they would have different locations where they were looking out for German fleets, and you need to get around because of these harsh conditions there. I went to a wartime museum not so long ago you are in Iceland. It's in the Western Fjord somewhere. And one of the stories they say there is that there was a group of British soldiers uh, during World War One, who were having a good time, and one day they decide they want to climb over into the next fjord. But then a blizzard hits while they are climbing. Some of them died, and a lot of them got injured and lost. That's a, a cautionary tale the, to how 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 things can change in Iceland. There's a joke, which I've heard a few times from different people, which is, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes. Because it's probably going to change, and then it's going to change again. But yeah, so the ring mode is, it gives you the experience of going through, like Iceland, the south and the north are very recent creations of our volcanic hotspot. But the east and the west are much older. So the east and the west are very similar to the Norwegian fjords for example, not very similar, but you you have these beautiful inland fjords so you have to drive all the way out and all the way in and it's a lot of beautiful nature along the way. The original reason why we went was we wanted to explore like how accessible is both the Ring Road and just the little towns uh, along Iceland because at the time I had no idea And our first experience was that it's if you become disabled if you lose the ability to walk and become dependent upon a wheelchair it's very difficult to live anywhere other than Reykjavik or Akureyri there were a few people living in Eilstader so it's doable but you know there are very limited services there are these hindrances of both accessibility but also uh, yeah, services is, a, is another one that was kind of a shock. We decided to keep doing it, go around the country every now and then, not to, you know, pester anybody or point out this other uh, failure to make things accessible, but just kind of raise awareness to the fact that this is something important. And I think uh, people kind of get used to the way things are. This was kind of epitomized by... Uh, a guy who ran a store who my friend worked for and he went to him once and said like why isn't this store more accessible and he said uh, well that's because disabled people never come here. Which of course you know it, it's almost a joke but I think this is the case though with a lot of like in our first trip we met a people who are like like mayor of, of a small area. When we talked about it they just weren't uh, aware of the problem you know they just hadn't thought about it. I kind of understand it. I, I didn't really think about it until I became disabled. If I ask you, is that place dis- you know, accessible, that hotel, you might say yes, not remembering that there were actually two steps or something on the way in because you don't notice these things unless you notice these things and you don't notice them unless you have a reason to or some experience with it. So a lot of my friends that I had made after becoming disabled, they mentioned this to me that... Uh, after trying to go to a cafe with me and not being able to go because of a step, then they would start looking all around them and seeing that there were interests all over the place. By going around the country, our first goal was just to raise an awareness of this issue. It was very rewarding. The second time we went, two, three years later, it was totally different in that it didn't feel like people weren't aware of the problems. This time they were more like, yes, we realize that there is a problem. But we're not exactly sure what to do about it. Or, or, you know, they had some kind of plan and we're just about to implement it. Yes, it is challenging. In our first trip, we were invited for coffee at Bessastær, which is the Icelandic pre- president's residence. It's an old house. It's very strictly protected. you are not allowed to change anything because they want it to look as historically accurate as it, as it was. In the past, our president, who is a... A very great guy. We're very lucky with him. here. Uh, he said that if, if he did one thing in his presidency, it would be to make pesticide accessible. Then I got to a kind of eavesdrop on that process because it turned out to be a lot harder than you know he expected in the beginning because everything needed to be designed very nicely. So it preserved kind of the appearance of the house as much as possible. There were these organizations that... Had that responsibility that resisted uh, change. In the end, it took uh, four years for you know the president of Iceland to make a change to this building, but it 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 did happen. Now there is a lift that will take you up the steps. There's another lift inside, and you know they're very very nicely done. And then uh, there's an accessible bathroom now in the place. So that was a wonderful example of, how, of what can be done if if the will is there. But also an example of it does take effort and time. I understand that it's difficult, but just the fact that people are aware of the problem and are willing to do something given the chance, I think that was what was important. So now my intention is to go around the country again. And I have gone around the country just for the pleasure of it. But this time we're going to try to show uh, some of the places where accessibility is available now. Because I do know that there are like a couple of waterfalls where they have made, at the very least, accessible parking spaces and then a ramp of sorts, which doesn't go maybe all the way to the waterfall but will take you far enough away from the parking lot I think this was one of the complaints that I had in the beginning was that when you travel around, you're kind of traveling between parking lot and parking lot and while everybody goes and explores, you're stuck in your chair on the edge of the parking lot so we want to go and try to show that there have been a lot of improvements and point out maybe places that could be better. I think that problem is being solved today by having like a centralized institution of sorts where I haven't really gotten all the info about it yet, but I know that there was a course run, I think last year, where a couple of people were educated in how to kind of assess accessibility so they can go to a location and determine is this place accessible uh, based on certain criteria. So the benefit of having these people is that I want to make things accessible, how do I do it? So they can then you know, point forward to people that do want to improve accessibility, now have somebody to go to and say, like you know, an architect or engineering company that has the knowledge of how to actually you know, do the thing. And then the third issue is of funding, of course. There's a guy, a very successful entrepreneur in Iceland. I'm told he is about to announce a project. And I don't have all the details, but apparently he is starting a new accessibility fund. He just sold his company to Twitter, so he has he has some uh, money to spare. I, I imagine that he's going to create some kind of grant system or loan system that will allow companies to uh, build ramps and do these things. So there you take away essentially the last uh, excuse that people have to improving accessibility. Our first trip, we organized uh, a meeting in four quarters of the country where we invited people to come and, and just talk about accessibility we didn't really know what we were gonna experience there but it turns out that there were a few people that had been living in very challenging conditions and had not had uh, a lot of support or attention for these issues so you know we felt there had been done some good in, in just showing up and and giving them a platform to voice their situation. That's kind of what we want to do today. Or this trip as well, we want to go and organize a meeting in at least four, maybe five different locations where people to come in and kind of point out the situation and hopefully connect the unsolved issues and problems to potential solutions. Mm. Like one of my uh, board members points out, there is a... No such thing as a problem, only untapped business opportunities. Well, there was one amazing guy who lives in a southern town, Vikimital, where uh, he had become disabled and bound to a wheelchair. There's no pavements, and during winter, of course, things become almost, you know, impossible to get around. But somehow, you know, this guy was—he was like really, really strong. He had a huge chest, having pulled and pushed himself around for many years around these places but as he pointed out he was getting older and one day he wouldn't have the strength that he did then to get around so what would happen then he would have to move so some people may, might think that's uh, not a big thing but some people do actually like living where they grew up and want to stay there if that can be made possible by making some improvements then I think that's something Worthy of worthy of our efforts and attention. One thing that we we're hoping uh, will happen, not necessarily as a consequence of what we're doing, but you know, we want to raise awareness about this issue. Is there needs to be a way of just kind of determining what is the minimum that needs to be in a place so that somebody with you know lives in a wheelchair can actually live there. So. Uh, Once we know that, then you can make an estimate about how much cost it's gonna take to do things, and then once you have a number, it's usually easier to raise money. Although, of course, we always go a little bit above, but, you know, rule of pie, we can always go by that. I was in like a physiotherapy center, and there they had these options that we could do. Uh, You know, there was sewing and knitting and stuff. When I tried to talk to people about art, It was always so fluid and that that kind of bothered me bothered me back then but uh, then it wasn't until after I got sick and I lost the ability to kind of do all the things that I used to do that uh, I started to explore like what I could do within my new limitations. Uh, It was really when I I read a book uh, about the brain, about how we have these two hemispheres and how one is logical and the other is uh, more creative. That's a oversimplification of course. I realized that uh, most of my life I'd been kind of applying this logical method of living in this world. I decided I needed to do something creative to try to uh, experiment with that. I've tried writing and I'm still trying to write. I do enjoy the process but painting kind of kind of came somehow into my life, and I've been doing that for seven years now, and I still enjoy it. Out of the available things, painting seemed the most attractive. At that time I I could still kind of use my hand a little bit, but I couldn't make any accurate lines or circles or shapes or forms. I got very frustrated, and at some point I had the thought that maybe I might just try using my mouth. I bit the brush, and I started painting that way and discovered that I could do quite accurate lines that way. I'd, I'd only done maybe two, three very basic paintings when a woman whose name is Etta, she was a, a very you know well-known actress here in Iceland and uh, she had MND. She herself had lost the ability to move her arms and she was a mouth painter. When she heard that I had put on these two paintings from nurse who, who knew her, she came and just basically uh, said if I was interested in this, she would come and, and help me and introduced me to the association of, like a global association of mouth and foot painters, which I am now a a student member of. Uh, So there there are a bunch of people all over the world who are painting with their mouths and their feet, people who are unable to use their arms. And this association helps them kind of make a job out of it or live off of beautiful example of social innovation. So I think that's one thing that I really like. traveling and, and losing myself you throw yourself in a different situation and then you don't know the language you don't know the culture you don't know how to behave so first couple of days you just sit and you observe and then you start trying to interact and slowly slowly you build a new model for your own behavior and suddenly you're a different person that's always always kind of gives me something I think something that happens just to your brain and your consciousness and how you perceive yourself So I I always like these moments where I kind of lose myself. When I'm here in Reykjavik, where I grew up, I have so much history. So I have so many memories and habits that are constantly hemming me in, like defining me as a who am I. I have a lot of ways to answer that question. But when I'm traveling, every person you meet, it's harder for them to kind of narrow you down because they don't know you they don't know your culture they don't make the same presumptions i mean there's always you know an essence which is consistent throughout everything you know what exactly that is one of the questions which is fun to try to answer But then there's these external things like habits. Like uh, when I was younger, I I would uh, drink. You know, part of our Icelandic culture is uh, heavy drinking that starts at an early age. But uh, when I traveled, I wouldn't drink as frequently. When I did drink, I did kind of go heavy into it, but uh, it didn't call me. It wasn't part of my personality as I traveled. So it was interesting that something which I considered as uh, addictive behavior in my normal life in Iceland just wasn't part of my persona as I traveled. I mean, I I used to smoke, so I I always smoked, you know, I couldn't let that go, but but like, yeah, with alcohol and other bad behaviors and good behaviors, they kind of, they stayed at home. I used to listen to a guy called uh, Alan Watts a lot when I was in the hospital. I listened to his lecture over and over and was One thing he talks about is uh, the concept of the persona, like uh, the origin of the word is from Greek uh, per-sona, so through sound, referring to the masks that uh, the actors used to wear that would amplify their voices and they take off one mask and they put on another one I really like that idea that wherever you are today it's not you're not bound by that except by habit and environment and I remember that a few times uh, during my lifetime a friend of mine would just show up one day completely different having changed their clothes their behavior and this always like puzzled me. So you know, I would go and like, what's going on? What, you know, what's wrong with you? Often, you know, they usually they wouldn't explain it. They were just unruly. I like it, but uh, one of them did explain it once. Uh, and he just said that one day he got bored of himself. He just woke up, didn't like who he was, so he just let it go and became something new. At the time, I thought you can do that. <laughs> Really, I like the idea of doing that over and over and over and over and just as many times and in as many different ways as you possibly can. Always shedding your past, letting go of your past attachments to yourself. And then just seeing what comes instead. And I think what happens is that gradually there are things that don't go away and hopefully these are the things, the parts about you that you like, the things that work get rid of the behavior, which is antisocial. I think a lot of people behave in ways that they don't want to behave, but they're just in that cycle because they had uh, bad bad situations as children or whatever. It can be all kinds of reasons. The ability to kind of shed that past, I think is something desirable. Nature is something that pulled me to art. Mm -hmm. At some point when I was young, I would look at a beautiful scenery and I would appreciate it in a very holistic way. I just saw beauty. I would be looking out at a beautiful scenery and I would see sand, lava, sky, cloud. It was all categorized and broken down into individual parts. And then you know I would try to build an appreciation of the whole by approaching it through these parts, but it just didn't work. There was something I had lost somehow, something there. So one, thought was having read this book about the hemispheres and how one hemisphere approaches the world through categorization and and the other is kind of constantly holistically just drinking in everything. I, I figured I might try to reclaim or rediscover this holistic appreciation of the world by stimulating this right side of my brain. So I started painting and it kind of worked. I still kind of now when I look at a the scenery, uh, there is still this element of breaking it down into parts, layers. Kind of, you know, I'll paint this part first, then in this color, and then I'll use this color to, you know, imbue blah blah blah. But still, there is a difference. I can kind of now again just kind of look because once you have created the painting, going through these individual you know processes and parts, you look at it as a whole. That was something that pulled me into it, uh, hope. Of reclaiming this experience and then another one is just kind of projecting myself onto a painting one of my favorite way of painting is I will tell my assistant just to put some paint down in front of the canvas and I might say yellow and blue and red but I don't really care which one I'll start out with a random brush just uh, any fan brush one day and filter the other and flat one day and then I just start painting Often I'll start by drawing a circle, intending it to be some kind of ball or something, and then I mess up the circle. It turns into more an oblong shape that turns into wiggly lines, and then somehow I I see some kind of forest hiding in the paintings. I start kind of painting trees, and then, you know, something happens, and suddenly there's a river there. And I'm just kind of following a process without any specific destination in mind. When I get into this flow, it's like time just disappears. These are usually the paintings also afterwards, which are my favorite. It's like some element in this where, where I don't really, I know I painted this painting, but somehow it just, it just happened and I was just there to witness the process. Very often I'll, I'll paint some kind of like sci-fi type landscapes or with some strange animals in it or which is yeah, always fun to kind of afterwards just see what has, has kind of come out of it and uh, yeah, the third thing which I'm trying now is to learn how to paint portraits but that's really difficult <laughs> I think uh, painting landscapes is very forgiving because when you're painting a mountain whether the line is here or there it doesn't really matter most of the time I mean some lines matter more than others But you can kind of get away with making errors and mistakes in that. But if the line above an eye is slightly skewed, it's a different person or it's a different face. So painting portraits with any kind of intention is an amazing skill. And uh, of course, there are ways of making it simple. Like you can create a grid and then you have uh, all kinds of way of measuring an image and then projecting it onto. Uh, canvas, but you know, I, I I don't like doing that. I like, I like kind of just going raw at it, and so portraits are especially challenging for that. I do kind of assume that if I just keep doing it, eventually, I'll, I'll get better at it, and and one day I'll paint a, paint a portrait of somebody, and, and I think it's the same though there, which, same thing that drives me there as with nature. It's like uh trying to replicate or capture beauty you see somebody beautiful or you have a beautiful moment with somebody I think the ability to be able to paint it and kind of preserve a moment one big part of it is I think I came to understand it through Zen Zen Buddhism where they talk about the beginner's mind I noticed how when I travel around here in Reykjavik I I see houses I see streets and I see very little but then, when I'm traveling in another city, a foreign, I see alleyways, I see gates, I see doors, I see windows, I see vegetation, I see animals, I see. So while while here, I will look into an alleyway and I see you know almost nothing. Similar alleyway in another country, suddenly is full of all kinds of details and information, which I notice because I, my mind is somehow it's awake. It's more receptive or or something. I don't know what's exactly going on, but the experience is that I am more awake, yeah, I suppose. So I think there was another really good book, June, I recommend that one. It's one of uh, the top 10, definitely. And one sentence in there, I can't quote it exactly. My friends would make fun of me, but if nothing changes, if you're always in a static environment, then something sleeps within you. And it's only through change that the sleeper will awaken. And then it becomes very dramatic. The sleeper must awaken. <laughs> Traveling is, in some ways, the pursuit of awakening.
1: I traded hurricanes for monsoon rains And I love it. I have no idea what's next It could be northern lights or Rocky Mountain has a have learned to be open to anything This is the journey the soul it's the adventure of me no matter what i'm told i know that i am free to roam my own way to float in my own sea and chase my own